0: Hello everyone, I'm JR and I'm Molly and this is episode 100 and something of too busy to flush if this is your first time joining us Thank you for being here and giving us an hour or so of your time We uh, are a happily married couple of 14 years this month.
1: Yes, this is August. We
0: have four children Episode 104 Episode 104 Mm -hmm, ages 11, 9, 7, and 4 and i have to stop calling her turd because she's been absolutely delightful the last little bit. That's S- true. Super cute. She has been. Super funny. Adorable. Super cute.
1: We told her the other day you guys that she gets cuter the more kisses she gets. And so she kissed me and told me that i was cute first of all, which was super cute. And i told her she was so cute cuz she kissed her so we kissed her so much when she was little. And she was like, I need more kisses. I need more kisses. And then she just laughed hysterically with all of the scratchy daddy kisses that Mm -hmm. he gave her. So
0: just a wee bit.
1: I your sister, Carrie, once said that she thinks that kids now I can't remember. Carrie, you'll have to follow up with me that kids go in four or six month cycles of being delightful Or challenging, and then the cycle shifts.
0: Oh, they alternate. You mean? And
1: they, yeah, and every kid's on their own cycle, right? But, but I feel like we we did a shift, and some of it has to do with our own consistency in parenting and in sleep schedules and family cycle, because Faith is absolutely more delightful when she's getting consistent rest. And since I was gone for the last week, I actually don't know how did you do with kids and bedtimes while I was gone for almost a week.
0: It was fine. I, they insisted. It was pretty much just like you being here, except instead of you sitting in the rocker upstairs.
1: But what time did you, right? Yeah, you guys, I've had to sit in in the the girls' room. So they all stay quiet long enough for their bodies to fall asleep, which if you sit there is sometimes only 30 seconds. But if Faith is really wound up, she can keep everybody up. So if you can keep, if she's wound up and you can keep everybody quiet for a few minutes, they'll fall asleep and then she still whispers to herself. Right.
0: Um, Okay. Sorry, guys. If I cough on the episode, my apologies. We have been sick for the last week and, or two weeks or something, and it's still just, it's like this annoying little tickle.
1: It's lingering. I think it's COVID. What I I used
0: to, I was joking for a while that it's not, it's definitely not monkeypox because I'm straight, but... Some people take that funny and other people get kind of offended. <laughs> so there's that.
1: I don't think monkeypox makes um, you cough either. But no, that's not it doesn't. the point of the joke. That's either. not the point
0: of the joke. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, uh, you'll have noticed by now that our podcast consists of kind of conversations all over the map. I like to call it, at least in this case, reality podcasting. Um, Molly, I'm staring at her journal right now and she's got lots of doodles, lots of artwork. Typical girly fashion. She's always got stuff that she's jotting down this, throughout the week.
1: This was while I was listening to the last three chapters of The End of Craving on the airplane.
0: Yes. So she's got all these. She's usually writing something down mm-hmm. throughout throughout the week that she may want to talk about on the show. So um, there's that. Um, yeah, The End of Craving, you guys. I might use that. That's kind of cool. I should use that as the show. Uh, cover artwork. My Episode there. artwork. Yeah.
1: You guys, if you have not picked up and read the book The End of Craving, that we we've now been talking about this for months and months and months. It started Food? with No, it started with the Sean Stevenson oh, podcast, the Model Health right. Show. He interviewed Mark Schatzker about his book, The End of Craving, and it was what was it a three-hour podcast interview? Something and we like that. we made people listen to it before the next episode. We gave people homework. We didn't make you obviously, but we invited people to and to, then to be more versed in it when we led this conversation about it. I have listened to the full book, The End of Craving, off and on. The end of it, you guys, is so theological. Well be it feels almost like a romans one moment where he is suppressing the truth because he says things so here's why i loved it so much it seamlessly integrates with my favorite book of all time the supper of the lamb which is crazy seamless integration of theology of eschatology of the theology of the body of enjoyment of creation creation stewardship of community, I mean, what else is it? It's it's all the things, all mixed into one book that's presented as a cookbook. And he... So so this is kind of the reference point for how I interpret a ton of my life. Again, the book is called The Supper of the Lamb. And the last couple chapters of the end of Craving, remember, craving is is a taste or a desire or a desire for something good that's overblown, right? Or a misconstruing of what is good. So, for example, overprocessed American food is engineered to make you want more of it. That that comment that you can't just eat one potato chip or Pringle, is it Pringles that you can't just eat just one of
0: Once you pop, you can't stop.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that's actually chemical engineering designed to manipulate your brain into addictive eating. And you get this from the end of craving. Here's the amazing, beautiful thing about the end of that book, which I listened to while I was flying out to my CanaVox conference. The cure for craving, for lack of a better word, crap food like Pringles is good food and cultivating good taste and so he goes on and on in chapters 11 especially 11 forward about the human body and brain have evolved in this incredible way where we we desire if we're all if we're functioning perfectly our brains haven't been corrupted our tastes haven't been corrupted if we're functioning perfectly what we desire to eat food wise is perfectly calibrated with what our body needs to function optimally. So, if we're deficient in something, we crave something that has that, like magnesium. Or, I mean, this one of the stereotypical ones would be a pregnant woman craving chocolate or craving to eat dirt, which is a thing. And that's because your body intuitively knows what it's deficient in and drives you to eat that thing well in an in an unfallen world we're eating things that don't corrupt our sense of taste in terms of what we want and how much we want how much of it we eat and so he says the cure for for craving is is to eat what is good and what is true in the sense that it's not nutritionally mismatched with what the nutritional content of it is and he makes comments like The human brain, it's not a computer program, but it's so finely attuned to drive your metabolism that it it feels
0: like this. He actually says in... I got so many things I could say too, but he actually says it's not... He's like, the humans are not machines. Yes. And they're not... uh, Here's why. And so he goes in to explain why... Humans are not machines. And so I just, I had this thought running through my head like, man, this has got to be kind of like pissing off all of the people who assume that, you know, they're always calling, you know, humans a complex machine and things like that. And I actually started thinking about that phrase in terms of what he was describing as human. I thought... That's kind of offensive to call a human a machine, you know, a complex machine. From a,
1: especially from a biblical perspective. Oh yeah. How incredibly complex it is to be made in the image of God, and what an incredible, not machine thing that we are—that our tastes and our desires are so closely calibrated to what we need nutritionally, and that what's Good for our souls in terms of satisfying food is also what's good for our bodies and and yeah he he gets so close to saying we're not a machine, but we're more finely tuned than the most complicated machine on the planet, and wow, isn't evolution incredible
0: <laughs> um the so Molly's on the on the flight. she said, "You had somewhat you have to listen to chapters eleven through thirteen so uh putting the kids to bed and I cleaned the kitchen running around i <coughs> threw an earbud in and listened to chapters eleven through thirteen um and i f- I found um the parallels like Molly was saying just remarkable in terms of what um You know, craving, you've got to replace, I mean, the theological and and spiritual application between replacing our tastes with what is good and craving what is good. We just had a conversation with the kids. It's like three, three nights ago. It wasn't a conversation. I think I was just praying with them. And I prayed that God would give us a desire because, you know, kids start sniping and they demand and all the things and we do too as as adults, but um, that we can really, I mean, God works at the level of the heart. He works on heart change. He works on those desires. He shapes who we are. There, and from that comes out, you know, James four comes out the uh, or three. I always get mixed up. Comes out our behavior, our actions. You know, what we say and what we do out of the, you know, Proverbs four twenty three. Out of the out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, praying that my kids will have God will foster in their hearts and in our hearts a greater desire to be aligned with the things he wants to be aligned with, a greater desire to practice the fruits of the spirit, to value, want those things and value those things. And then it has to be shaped in a very exact similar way as our tastes. Mm -hmm. You know, they need to be shaped for what's good. So he was, he was the gal he was writing about one of her, uh, one of this, one of her um, patients was eating an entire bag of gummy worms. Um, at one time, for a variety of reasons, and she would go to iron and she would line up the gummy worms. And she said it was almost the the association, and the relationship that these patients who overate had with their food was almost endearing, and kind of cute. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a there's a, something there, that connection. So this patient would line up all these gummy worms right in a row on the ironing board, and if she's ironing clothes, she'd eat one after the other. So this gal said, no, next time. Here's real Belgian chocolate. Mm-hmm. Anytime you have a craving for gummy bears, take a piece of chocolate, put it in your mouth, let your, let your mouth's heat melt that chocolate on your tongue. And we've talked about this particular Belgian chocolate thing before, and I said, well... Every, and so my joke was, every time I was hungry, I was just going to eat chocolate. Um, anyway, so the patient did this and um, essentially cured herself of that. Didn't cure herself. Reshaped her craving... For gummy it was something that was much healthier and much better for her. And more satisfying. And more because satisfying. She was
1: letting it affect all of her senses. Because when, when Mark Schatzker does the chocolate experiment with Anya is the name of this researcher. I can't remember her last name. She she's German. She has him close his eyes and just let the chocolate melt over his tongue. And it's such a full sensory experience. I can't remember how he describes it in the book now, but it was almost uh, like he was having a religious experience because his senses were so and the different series of sensations that he got from the texture of the chocolate as it was melting. And there was even this lingering aftertaste that is so when you, when you immerse all of your senses in the experience of eating food. He he said it was so much more satisfying than sitting there. Because prior to the chocolate one, she made him sit and think about potato chips. And he could take a nibble of one, but he couldn't even eat the entire potato chip. Even though she's like, now crinkle it in your hands. Now feel the roughness of it. She drove him crazy with desire for potato chips, but didn't let him fulfill the desire. And he was like, I don't even like potato chips. <laughs> and I, all I could think about was eating... That entire bag of potato chips, and I know it would have left me unsatisfied.
0: It's you know, I mean, the obvious parallel there too, especially for a guy, is you know, uh, sexual gratification. You know, masturbating over porn is not even kind of as satisfying as actual sex with your wife. Yeah, I mean, and
1: there's there's a science to back that up in terms of the chemicals, the the hormones, and pheromones that are released. By a man in the two different acts.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the culmination kind of just the, the, this is a, a sort of a natural mind. I had discussions on, on natural. No, I was participating in a discussion on natural law, but how God has wired us is so holistic that the spiritual aspect of desire actually flows out to how we're wired in terms of just our eating habits. Mm-hmm. You know, the parallels are so similar and that design is so inherent in who we are. Um, so I was listening to all this stuff and just kind of like marveling going, Molly is going nuts right now <laughs>
1: You're right, I was, with all
0: of the connections she's I making. I have to
1: re-listen <coughs> to, to it.
0: Cause there's, excuse me. Um, Cause there's also that um, the connection, when she mentioned having a connection with food, he goes on and spends almost an entire chapter On there's on how food is much more satisfying when it's not simply a utilitarian uh, thing for nutrients. Yeah. You know, they created this, uh, an engineer created this like perfect food similar to the porridge you guys remember from the Matrix, you know. The sludge they ate, but it had all the nutrients the body would need, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it wasn't satisfying, and then he goes on to talk about how
1: and it's not only people's... not satisfying; it's dehumanizing. Yes, if you follow that train in the
0: oh in the yeah oh, yeah oh man, and you, know, it, I was immediately going into into uh, into uh, you know thought processes towards you know transhumanism because it's all of a sudden now machines and science can fix.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: our nutrient supply and our need for what we need. And so it's kind of takes us to the next level, but going back to the lady with the gummy bears and how people have this connection with food. He also made an additional argument that food is much more satisfying when you're enjoying it with other people around an event. And I'm like, Oh my word, Molly's going nuts right now.
1: Right. And yes. Okay. So I wrote down a couple of, of quotes. So he's, he starts the book and then he goes back at the end of the book to this museum in Bol- Bolognese. what's Bologna, whatever the... Bologna. Uh, Bologna. Bologna, Italy. And they actually have a, a museum and a golden noodle that is the perfect proportions for the noodle that represents this region, and it's made out of gold. And there's some little old lady who's the keeper of the golden noodle, and they all have their own Bolognese recipes, and there's different p- things, but... But he he goes on and on about Italian cuisine. And at one point, he makes a comment. It's hard to argue with the keeper of the golden noodle. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I can't even remember the context of it. He also makes a comment about how, how unsatisfying the modern American dieting diet is. And he says, there's no better recipe for everlasting hunger than eating light. And I, having just spent most of two days in the last week in airports felt that comment really deeply (laughs) because who is not constantly hungry Uh. in an airport or in an airplane when they hand you that baggie of snacks are you actually hungry no do they actually no this is just you you guys this is just an extension
0: of what we do to kids in preschool Like, they treat adults the same way. Snack time. You're on a boat tour. Oh, time for sandwiches and snacks, everybody. Anyway, I, I
1: just think the opposite of that comment, there's no better recipe for everlasting hunger than eating light. The opposite of that is Psalm 63, 5, where he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I think he's not just talking about that metaphorically, but literally your body and your soul are satisfied when you're enjoying rich, filling, satisfying food in the company of other people.
0: I mean, think like about some of the there. best food you've ever had and I'll bet it's going to there's going to be an event or you're out with someone doing something. It it's not like, oh yeah, I was, you know, I was hungry for lunch one day, and I went down to this local restaurant. It was like the best meal I would ever or, had. In my life.
1: Or, or what if you went by yourself to a really yeah. expensive steakhouse? No, Nobody's, You'll remember it. No. Like, you'll remember it because you wanted to share the experience. Right? With the Nobody's
0: people. had those aren't the best meals we've ever yeah. had.
1: Okay. He also says, I think Goethe, because he talks a lot about Goethe, the German, he's best known for the work Faust, would see our food problem as a symptom of a deeper mistake that we treat ourselves as machines.
0: Hmm. This was where this was another moment on uh on our telegram group this last week, um uh Rachel posted a question about, you know, a thought or a question about the differences in prayer between, you know, cultures. And Well she I, was
1: asking about asking for th- right for protection. And I,
0: that's not my where I'm going, but um my response was really limited and I probably should have just withheld because I didn't have a chance to fully flesh it out. But as Molly and I have been talking and for a long time now, especially on the show, she's reading Carl Truman and giving me insights from him. And even this capacity, even this one thing with uh, with what's his name? The philosopher? Gerda. Gerda? Gerda, yeah. Yeah. Even with Gerda, I, Goethe.
1: Goethe. Yeah. You want Goethe.
0: G O E T H E. I don't know if I'm pronounced. Goethe. Gert, um I remember I'm struck with how much my Western Christian evangelical faith has been influenced my biblical understanding of who we are in life has been so radically influenced by um, secular and atheist ideologies because as he's talking he's talking about Gida's mistake that we're humans he then moves into conversations on on what Freud and what um, uh, Marx and so these other people have done for our thinking when it comes to food and culture, which then turned around and made me think, man, I apply those same things to my faith. Like, this is really kind of scary.
1: Uh-oh, yeah.
0: So, yeah, it's just, it's, um, the last, especially the last three chapters of the book are just like, whoa. So
1: good, yeah. yeah. I have a couple more comments. Uh He says, and again, on the the antidote to craving is is the real thing the good thing and satisfaction with it he says we've built a wall between our thinking self and our pleasure-seeking self and pleasure in food should be our guide which i and then negatively he says what the food we eat day to day is a reflection of how we think about ourselves um and and Go, that going back to we see ourselves as machines. And also he makes a comment that Americans see food essentially as a slow-acting poison. Where in Italy, the goodness of food isn't so much questioned as it is revered. And so just that that pleasure in food should be our guide. I have to go back to Capon on it. At, this is actually, I believe, I googled this quote because I didn't have my book with me and I haven't referenced it to cross-check, but I'm pretty sure this is at the end of a section where he's talking about cultivating taste for good food in kids. And he's very pragmatic, like, don't waste your good food and time on your kids, but also don't just feed them garbage all the time and not cultivate their taste. He says, to be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessarily, necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. In light of that, I suggested to people on our Telegram channel last night that they try chopping avocados finely and mixing it with garlic salt and finely chopped orange. It is a fantastic guacamole. I went so far as to say it's it's the best guacamole. I will change that and say it's my favorite guacamole because Kim said, well, I wouldn't say it's the best, but it's really good. (laughs) I also want to commend to you guys a recipe that Kim fed us while we were in Kalispell a couple weekends ago, which is essentially a caprese salad, but made with peaches instead of tomatoes. So she chopped up peaches. She didn't peel them, just cut up fresh peaches. I think the fresh peach thing is key. You couldn't do it with canned or frozen. Fresh peaches, uh, fresh mozzarella, so not the shreds, but the chunks that you can buy at Costco or wherever. Cut that up. She topped it with basil. She had, I think, walnut pieces on it. You could probably skip that. You could do pine nuts. You could probably do pistachios. And then I said basil, and then she had a simple balsamic dressing on it. It was so good. I have been craving it ever since. I bought some peaches shopping the other day. They're not ripe, but I've got all the other ingredients ready to go for a peach caprese salad.
0: Um, so funny, funny uh, anecdotal point on this here recently from mine as lives. She was the kid's... It was one of those crazy, like every week is crazy for us. But we're kind of running around doing our thing. We haven't had much of a chance to connect. And then somewhere towards the afternoon, um, you know, I'm asking Molly what, like, what's what's the latest thing happening? She's like, "Well, I'm here. The kids are all with my mom, and I'm going back to pack for my trip to Cana Box. And I'm like, "And and we're going. They're going to be over there for dinner." And I'm like, "Wait, we have an open dinner evening. Like, we're alone by ourselves. We could go do something." And she's like, "Yeah," and I was like, "You want to go out to eat?"
1: No, she, your parents took the kids. My parents cool. took the kids, and yeah. she goes,
0: "Why? Well, I, I, I don't know. Do you want to? Sure, whatever." And I'm like, okay, well, "Where do you want to go?" Classic question, right? It's like browsing through Netflix. What do you want to watch? Uh, and the first thing that hit me, and I don't know that it would have hit me if like prices hadn't gone bananas here in Billings um, on
1: restaurant prices. Yeah, if
0: you had, if you've heard us in the past episode. Our food prices are pretty much resort prices on Hawaii right now. If you want to go out for a lunch or a restaurant, you're paying about the same. So <laughs> I started thinking, and I'm like, well, you know, money's, you know, I don't, we don't make as much as we used to, you know, and most people just can't s- willy nilly spend it. So I'm like,
1: and I'm also spending and, yeah. a, half again as much on my grocery budget. Right. Yeah. As grocery know,
0: So all the things. And, <clears throat> We've just been discussing the end of craving and all, this, and I'm like, I man, do I really want to waste my money and my taste buds on inferior food? Because I know what restaurants that the short list of restaurants that actually have good food that I'd be willing to pay for. I little one of them is really expensive, but it's got good food, and the rest are good, but we probably couldn't get in. And everything else is like Cisco, and it's like I don't want Cisco food. I want real ingredients, real food. And I'm like, man, I don't, I don't really, uh, I don't, uh, I don't know what I, what I, what I want. And so we ended up settling on Thai because it was, uh, it was a lot different. Um, and we don't usually It was, an, home, it was a
1: brand but. new Thai restaurant and we'd never been there before. And it's owned by a, a just a couple. She's Asian, he's white. What was his t-shirt or his hat? It was like a gun hat. Or shirt uh, Hoyt or something. Archery. Yeah, so that was kind of fun, and it was yeah. it was a good meal, big portions. We were we were pleased with it. So if you're local, hit us up, and we can we can tell you. Well, it's the new type... I can't remember what it's even called.
0: Nobody listens to our show, Lives in Billings. Yes,
1: they do. <coughs> yes, they do. It's, it's the, the old
0: taste of Asia. It's the old
1: taste of Asia and the Remarkment of the Um
0: And
1: it was, it was good and it wasn't crazy expensive. But it
0: was funny thinking through, like, if I have time and money, what do I want to spend my taste buds on? When you start thinking of it in this capacity, like, what's worth... What's worth your, your taste buds? So, yeah. you were gone and I was... You know, I don't sleep when Molly travels. I stay up late and binge watch... You know, in this case, I was watching uh, Halo. I finished, what did I finish watching?
1: You were watching Halo.
0: No, the one before that I finished watching. Oh, Reacher. I, I finally finished watching Reacher. And there were some leftover potato chips from Tyus and I's Mountain Biking Epic Weekend. And I said, nah, I don't want those. You have some I don't want wanna... No, I had more zucchini cake. The oh. chocolate zucchini cake. You guys, Lili, this season. our second born Lily, has been just itching for zucchini season, because she's made like multiple zucchini cakes now, and they are way better than your fav- favorite brownie, just or chocolate cake, just it just and beats we, everything.
1: I have a standard recipe that I like to use that makes a nine by 13 pan. I will send you the <laughs> link, but it it just incorporates sprinkling chocolate chips on top. The recipe that since I was out of town, the first zucchini cake that Lily got to make for the season, Grammy, JR's mom, made with her, and they frosted it. And that was, like, set the bar really high for zucchini cake for the rest I prefer, of the summer.
0: I preferred the one you brought over to your dad's house when we were working on his, on his, uh...
1: Well, that's the one that lawns. I normally make, but the kids were really disappointed that we weren't going to frost it. It's
0: okay. I liked the one yesterday better. Okay, so... We have you had the opportunity I don't know where you wanted to go on the podcast, but people probably want to know um, you had the opportunity Inquiring to, sit minds at want to know. the feet of
1: metaphorically only
0: Dr Carl Truman for a weekend um and I realized I'd forgotten that you um you had class with him, which is also a funny Mike and that's kind of funny too but um, how was your weekend at Kana Box? What new things did you come away with? What... Uh, <coughs> all the things.
1: I I don't know. That's a really big question. Uh, learning from Dr. Truman was great. It was mostly questions feeding off of his book. There was a lot of discussion about natural law. And most of my Kana Box crowd is Catholic. So they're like, of course... Apparently, he, the Protestant world in America has pushed back a little bit on him for using the phrase natural law because he believes that the at least part of the path forward for Christians in this strange new world, which is the title of his book, is for us to dig more deeply into an understanding of natural law, which simply means seeing that the universe... The physical world has obvious design and that there are moral implications from that design. That is a layperson's definition of natural law. And I, myself, I loved hearing him discuss that as well as... So he he people balk in the Protestant world, apparently, at him saying natural law. And then he says, do you not believe that there's a design to the world and there's moral implications coming out of that design? And they're like, well, yeah. And he's like, that's natural law. Call it whatever you want. We need to be training ourselves and our kids in this. And I've been thinking a lot about this and have been trying out different ways of training our... So our oldest is 11, you guys. He is now getting to where we can have more philosophical discussions with him, which we can close by the philosophical discussion we had at dinner last night about skiing. But... um We But with my younger kids, I'm still very much catechizing them in how to read the world around them, and I want them to understand that they can trust their gut in reading the world around them. So just yesterday, uh, I can't remember if it was Elise or Faith, I was holding our cat Minerva, who is like a seven-pound black cat, and... Our dog Maui, who is a seventy-five pound black lab mutt, walks by, and I put her on his back, and I was like, "Hey guys, look, Minerva is riding Maui." And then they started joking about, "I want a saddle so I can ride Maui." And then one of the kids was like, "Well, I'm going to ride Minerva," and I was like, "Okay, let's let's pause, time out, let's discuss if you could and should ride a cat." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let's take something that's really obvious. Okay, look at a cat. Look at let's let's look at a cat. What what do her teeth tell us that she's made to eat? Is a cat supposed to kill and eat things or is a cat supposed to eat grass? Oh, those pointy teeth means that she was designed. This is built into the structure of how she's designed. She's designed to kill and eat things. Would she do well if we told her you you now need to eat grass and flowers to survive? She would not. She wouldn't actually be able to do it. And if she could somehow manage to do it, her body would not thrive on that. So that's there's a moral obligation on us as her owners to feed her in a way that is consistent with her design. Okay, now let's look at her body. Can somebody, even a fifty pound four year old, sit on this seven pound cat without severely hurting her? Well, of course not. We couldn't even sit on our 75 pound dog without hurting you know I mean yeah you, the, the four-year-old can sit on him while he's lying down. But it would be not it, it would be silly, but we can take what what's obvious that it's silly and impractical for a person to sit on a cat or to sit on a dog and expect to ride that cat or dog like a horse. but we can also bring that into the moral realm. It would be morally wrong for you, a 200 pound, six foot three man, to sit on a cat because you know that it would hurt her. So, based on basic physics like gravity and weight differentials, and looking at how you're designed and how she's designed, we can take what we can observe from the natural world and we can draw moral rules from that which is you should not sit on that cat because it will hurt her and your job is to observe the world around you and to act in a way that benefits creatures and the world around you writ large. So I'm trying to lay the groundwork for really all of life which right now We live in such a topsy-turvy world that people have no grounding. And to be able to tell my girls as they get older, you are a woman. Look at the design of your body. Look at your place in the world because of the design of your body and the way the world is structured. And guide your aspirations in the world accordingly. I don't know exactly what that looks like. And again, like you mentioned cultures, it looks different in every culture, a man's and a woman's role. We discuss this regularly but but i'm trying to build from the very outset that you can look at the design of something another example i've been thinking of but i haven't tried it out in the kids yet is if you were to look at a minivan and a dump truck okay look at these kids tell me which one is designed for hauling dirt
0: minivan especially if you have it's full of kids right it's just dirt all the time which
1: one is designed for hauling <laughs> kids right the kids will intuitively know There is a design that brings with it the expectation of how you use that, but you could also say, okay, let's say neither of these belongs to you. Would it be morally wrong to try to haul dirt in somebody else's minivan? You borrow the minivan and you try to haul dump truck loads worth of dirt. Not only would it be impractical and inconvenient to the point of being silly, if it's not yours and you're filling a minivan with dirt, it's wrong. Okay. Your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. You use that body according to its design. And you study the body to understand its mm. design. Yeah,
0: your your comment that it was bought with a price is uh, adds a whole other layer.
1: It does. And, and I think that, that goes into the realm of Christian theology, obviously, rather than the beautiful thing about natural law, by and large, is that you should be able to universalize it, but one of the questions, because Cain of Ox is technically a secular organization, but we're all we all have a faith basis. There's Mormons, M- Mormons, Protestant, evangelical Protestants, and Catholics. I think are all who were represented there. But somebody said, you know, can we work entirely in the secular realm? And Truman, being a good reformed the- theologian, said no. <laughs> You you can only go so far before you have to bring in your faith in terms of understanding that that you were made in the image of God. So even if we're not telling someone that you're not your own, you were bought with a price, having been made in the image of God and bearing the beauty and the meaning and the dignity that that, that we understand that brings to every human person, that in itself has moral implications that an evolutionary understanding of mankind simply doesn't. Um, An evolutionary understanding of mankind for sure leads us into transhumanism and transgenderism, which I think it was Truman who said he believes that transgenderism is actually a form of transhumanism because it's trying to overcome human boundaries. I
0: I would agree with that.
1: Yeah, I just never thought of it in those terms, but that.
0: Does he define Does he define transhumanism as overcoming human boundaries?
1: He he.
0: Or a, or a strive to do that.
1: I I don't remember exactly how he defined it, but he had. I remember him mentioning something about eternal life. That transhumanism, the goal ultimately is to overcome mm-hmm. death, right? Yeah. Which I. I think I would have to see transgenderism as overcoming human boundaries rather than necessarily. And, okay, I'm going to link this back to the beginning. And then, okay, I'm going to make a rabbit trail. Then I'm going to link this back to our end of craving discussion. And then I'm going to go ahead to the skiing discussion. Okay, so there's a roadmap for the rest of our thing. <laughs> okay, rabbit trail. Rabbit trail. Carl Truman very briefly, while well, he was a professor at Westminster, for like seven years, his church didn't have a pastor, so he was both a seminary professor and the pastor of his small church. And he said, "Churches in the summer always do VBSs. I'm not gonna. If you've if you've heard him speak, he's not really the VBS type, vacation Bible school type. <laughs> so what he did there was a there was a
0: none of the kids in America could understand. There was a
1: local park. No, this gets better actually because of that. He's Scottish. There's a local park close to his church, so in the evenings for a week straight, he would bring a rocking chair into the local park and read aloud The Chronicles of Narnia in his Scottish accent. And he would just sit, and he said, some, you know, church members would come and bring their kids, and neighborhood kids would come because we gave them water ice afterwards, and there was a gay couple that would come just because they liked the camaraderie and they liked my accent, and... You know, I always made a point to greet them kindly afterwards and made sure that they got the best flavors of water ice. But uh, but I just thought, that is so cool. I'm not a VBS type of person either in terms of the loud games, and I appreciate people who have gifting and doing silly games and silly songs with kids, and I know that kids love it. And it has its place in American church culture both for better and for worse. But I just thought what a delightfully creative and beautiful way to reach out to the kids in your world to just sit in a rocking chair in a park and read The Chronicles of Narnia for a week straight for several summers in a row.
0: Okay, for for clarification, the transhumanism definition is I think you could you can put transgenderism into this because you're using uh, biotechnology uh, neurotechnology you're using some artificial means with which to strive to transcend the physical limitations of the mind and body by technological means mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm honestly I like I'm going to go down hopefully in history you guys hearing this but like CRT in the 70s or 80s or whenever it started 90s um, transhumanism is like the next big battle okay. so I'm done K back you.
1: No, no, no. No. We're we're building <laughs> what is the best antidote at our disposal for transhumanism? To inoculate ourselves and our kids and the people around us against transhumanism. Eating food. Yes! Family dinners. I got it. I got the answer right. <laughs> Inviting people you to are... your table because here we are. Man is not a machine. We are so much more than machines, and the best way to stay in touch with that is human fellowship face-to-face over good food and a, a dinner party is all of your senses. You are so human in the best way, in the image of God way. You are fulfilling what it means to be a creature who has been put on God's earth to fill the earth to subdue it and to usher in the kingdom that's consummated with the supper of the lamb that's what it means to be human and you keep rooted in it by eating family dinners and inviting other people to them you guys, good, good you food. guys can't
0: see me good i like start i just started like <laughs> my arms up i'm pointing at molly going preach preach that's but that's that's it and that's like you, you're putting yourself in a position, recognizing, willingly and intentionally recognizing your finite need for nourishment, and that's the most beautiful thing that I've you know that it's just about eating. Is like God could have absolutely created it to be purely functional, yes, purely practical, but He didn't. Uh-huh. Not only did He not, He He created us with an amazing ability to taste complex. Uh, and, features and
1: an earth full of amazing flavors and creative and brains to do all exactly these Exactly, and for almost them.
0: unlimited combinations, and the creativity, and the desire, and the desire to want to mix and match and create. And the and mixing go to the and matching the
1: beautiful flavors is deeply good for you, body and soul. Yeah. All right. uh, um. So that actually. I'm I'm not going ahead to skiing quite yet because Mm -hmm. you're talking about eating is such an incredibly dependent act because you can't produce, especially in our modern world. Or even if you think of the days of, you know, my classic, go back to the days of the Laura Ingalls Wilder Little House on the Prairie. They couldn't produce all of the food that they needed. They still had to buy sugar. And even if they grew all of their own flour and ground it, they couldn't produce everything they needed Everything that we eat means that we're deeply dependent on other people as well as the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And that brings me to the whole discussion on prayer on our Telegram channel, which was fantastic. And there's so many different facets where you could talk about praying for God to protect you. And you can pray that that prayer in fear and you can pray that prayer in faith, as somebody commented But you can also, everything you do has to be predicated on recognizing that you are dependent on God. And God created us to need multiple meals a day to recognize our dependence. And the not just to recognize it, but to lean into it as an aspect of our humanness. And the more we try to get away from dependence on the Lord... By denying it or trying to be self-sufficient, the more we are subconsciously veering into transhumanism, to denying Mm -hmm. the creatureliness of our existence rather than leaning into our dependence on God for the very air we breathe, let alone every meal we eat, let alone protection from the big things and the small things. So last night you guys, switching gears one more time. Final. Well you time had to do a link episode. back
0: and then go back to skiing.
1: I did go the link back was the end of thing yeah. again. So so at the Big Sky State Games opening ceremony, which is our regional competition for like it's mini Olympics, they do a torch lighting at the It's opening a national ceremonies. the Big
0: Sky the State Games organization is a national organization that facilitate all these. And
1: there's like thirty nine states that have yeah. them. Montana's is called the Big Sky State Games and I don't think Wyoming and the Dakotas have them so people come from there to compete in ours and it's it's fun kids of all eight people of all ages Faith was the youngest participant, she's four huh. we think in the entire state games, there were two other four year olds who were doing equestrian stuff but she ju- Faith had just turned four so it seemed like a good chance that she was the youngest and there was a 90 year old woman who ran a race, or 90 some year old woman so this huge age range very big community thing for our community also, a huge economic driver because people come in from all sorts of places and eat at restaurants and stay in hotels. The and our kids do the judo tournament. the The opening ceremonies torch lighter was a guy who had medaled in the Olympics several years ago. His name is Brad Wilson. He was a skier. He's from Butte, Montana, and because they always have a Montana Olympian light the torch. He they showed a clip of a documentary that was made about Montana freestyle skiers several years ago. It was a PBS documentary, and I thought, yeah, that would be fun. So I I opened, I did a search for it during the opening ceremonies, and I opened it on a tab in my browser. I have like 60 open tabs in Brave. And while I was traveling, I was scrolling through tabs trying to close them, and found that, and remembered it. And so... Yesterday afternoon, Titus asked if he could have some screen time because he'd worked outside in the heat of the day for several hours. And so I, I was like, "Why don't Why don't you try this this movie out?" And I had him watching it on the computer in our kitchen area, which is our family computer, while I was doing some farting around in the kitchen and emptying the dishwashers and stuff. And it it's a re if you are a skier or if you are a Montanan, preferably both. Either one would work though. Or if you like just human interest stories, it's a really delightful, hour-long documentary. And I will have, I'll send you the link. We're watching it again as a family this weekend so that everybody can see it. But, but the very opening statement... God, now I can't remember exactly the opening statement.
0: This freestyle skiing is the closest thing I've ever come
1: to, to, have, to having a religion. To have a religion. And this is a an Olympic skier, a woman, and this is the statement with statement with which they opened this entire show, which was so funny to me that in such a secular age, the most powerful way they can open a documentary is to make it a religious experience, even though you even know, though half, God half, is half dead. the world
0: hates hates religious experiences. You know they're abusive and. They're legalistic and yada yada right. yada.
1: And so so after the show so I'm I mused over this quite a bit. And after the show was over, I asked Titus what he thought of that statement and he didn't really have much to say about it, which didn't surprise me, but I was like, Well, I have stuff to say about it <laughs> Which also did not surprise him. And I just loved musing over and we asked the question again at dinner. Of your parents, because they were at the table, and we all had a different take on what she meant or what was intriguing to us about that statement. And I would be interested to hear other people's, especially if you watch it, but you don't have to watch the show to have a reaction to the statement. X, whatever it is, skydiving or painting or eating an amazing meal at a steakhouse or going to this concert is the closest thing I've ever had to a religious experience or the closest thing I've ever had to a religion. Whatever it is, it's saying two things, two big things to me. And one is you recognize that there is such thing as a supernatural realm or supernatural experience or that there should be because there's an experience as... Was it last week or the week before that I referenced Rich Mullen's song, There's Such a Thing as Glory, and there are hints of it everywhere. And if if somebody doesn't have the vocabulary to describe a religious experience, they recognize that lack because there are religious experiences in the world, whether you have the vocabulary for it or not. And the other thing, if you don't have the vocabulary and the theology for it, you substitute the good thing for the giver of the good thing. And that was kind of the point that I drove home to the kids because we all love skiing and we all love good experiences and good things as a family. And and we are designed to love and enjoy good things. But we're designed to love and enjoy them and not worship and serve them rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. And I gave them the example of a couple of years ago, my dad, some people who are no, I think most of our crowd will be OK with this example. A couple of years ago, <laughs> my dad and mom.
0: If you're not welcome to two visit a flash.
1: Right. Right. At least we haven't talked about bodily functions this episode yet. No, there's I did still talk time. about
0: masturbation. I mentioned that oh, earlier. That's right.
1: Never <laughs> mind. Never mind. Uh so we a couple of years ago, my parents gave the two girls, there's this there's a gas station we stop at on our way to our cabin, and they have this little corner that sells fishing gear and guns. And there was a pink camo twenty two that Elise just longed for whenever she would see it. She longed for a pink camo 22. So for Christmas, my parents gave Elise her pink camo camouflage 22. They gave Lily a purple 22 caliber gun. And they gave Titus a, bo- a kid sized bow and arrow so he could start working like, on bow hunting. Not
0: just bow and Legi- arrow, but like full on compound, compound
1: bow. One that he could kill yeah. an animal with, right? Yeah. So, so I said, What if you had opened that and especially Elise, our little gun lover, (laughs) what if you had opened it and you said, thank you so much, gun, for coming into my life. Thank you, gun. You're amazing, gun. You're so generous, gun. I'm so glad, gun. And she was like, well, that's silly. The gun didn't give itself to me. That's right. You have to thank the giver of the gift. You can't thank the gift or it just becomes absurd. And she was able to repeat that example to your parents, so I know that she got it at least. But but the same is for skiing or concerts or any good experience or good thing. Yes, if you don't have a the- a good theology of who God is and that he is the giver of good gifts, skiing is the closest thing you will ever get to a religious experience, but you're substituting the gift praising the gift for praising the giver and the best experience of the gift is when you understand the goodness of the giver in light of that good gift. That's it.
0: Yeah. Um, if you guys, we've mentioned telegram a couple times on the show. And if you guys want to join that group, it's uh, we have a private telegram channel called too busy to flush. And there's approximately 70 members. I would say, Half of them are fairly active. And uh, I'll include the link to that group in the show notes. I'll also include the following links to The End of Craving, Supper of the Lamb, Strange New World, the ski documentary, and I'll include the zucchini recipe, zucchini cake recipe that Molly, well, I love so much <clears throat> that she does. So um, if you like what we have to say, the greatest compliment you could ever give us is to share us with your friends, uh, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, whatever your favorite social media is, word of mouth, just tell people you like us, you know, send them, text them the episode link. And if you want to send us a message, like I said, you can do so on uh, Telegram. You can also go to our website, www.tobusytoflush.com and scroll down there and you'll find a little uh, postcard uh, form. You can send us a little postcard there. while you're there, swing over to the web store, pick yourself up a People Weird and Hard uh, coffee mug or a t-shirt because people are weird and hard. We haven't talked much about that recently, but it just, it never ceases to be true. Every single day, something happens. Molly and I look at each other and go, people "Mm, are
1: weird and hard.
0: People are weird and hard. So that said, thanks for joining us. We hope you guys will subscribe and uh, share us with your friends. And in the meantime, we will uh, talk to you next week.
1: Adios.